Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today and finding our podcast. It's Monday, June 20th. We're going to dive into a few different issues uh, from the weekend, including the awful incident that happened Friday outside a uh, a, a, on a TTC bus um, with a woman being set on fire by a man. That man appears in court today. He's 33 years old. And we're still learning about this particular crime. And we're looking for solutions. And I want to lay out some things that I know don't work before we talk about the things that might actually work. But I don't know if more security, more cops prevents anything quite like this. Uh, We'll get to there. As well, um, I thought a bit of a uh, nonsensical comment from the president of the Canadian Medical Association. And I wanted to address it uh, when it came to us caring more about airport wait times than uh, scheduled surgery times at hospitals. That's not something that is real or happening in our culture right now, and I think it deserves being put in its place. Lots more on the podcast, including our 4 for 4 quiz, and we'll talk about some of the gun violence that plagued Toronto over the weekend as well with someone who lost their own son to gun violence in the city. It's Toronto Today, and it starts now. Here's how the weekend started. I'm going to get to a really, really, really influential ruling yesterday that's got its controversy. It literally is something where you go, I see both sides of this, but I might align more with the one side. But it's going to affect amateur sport, and it's going to affect you, and it's going to affect your neighborhood, and it's going to affect your local sports teams, like amateur sports teams and college and university sports teams. I'll explain more about it. But I couldn't all weekend uh, stop, you know, thinking about seeing coverage of and having brief conversations with friends about what happened on a city bus on Friday. This happened at 1230 on Friday. So I want to give it the proper time. Investigators got called to uh, the area of Kipling and Dundas Street West. I know exactly where that is uh, for reports of an assault. And you're going to get those calls if you're a cop. You're gonna, it's going to come in on your police radio. Let's get to this area. We've got an assault. But this was no normal assault. And this is no usual investigation. And this won't be a typical court appearance today for the person charged. A 33-year-old man was charged for setting a woman on fire. It's not a joke, quite obviously. It's pretty awful. And now they're looking into whether it's a suspected hate crime or not. You know the struggle sometimes, and many ex-cops have, and many current cops privately, and many ex-cops publicly have documented their frustration sometimes with the idea that the public doesn't get to know very much. And the less the public knows and the less the public gets informed, as much as there's really hard work for a lot of, I've seen Alex Lee, um, who we're going to hear later in the show about these shootings yesterday, basically from late Saturday night, all the way through last evening yesterday, you couldn't keep up with them. You couldn't keep up with where they were and who was critically injured and who was dead and where this was and why it happened. You couldn't com- you couldn't keep up. But Alex Lee covered this off on Friday afternoon. A man reportedly poured an accelerant substance on her and then ignited the substance. That's not a shove. That's not an assault. That's not the and these people didn't know each other as if it would matter. And according to Alex Lee, the woman has critical injuries in a hospital. We know very little about her background. We know less about the man's, and we expect to know more a little later on today. Now, you might say, and some might say, big city, huge amount, millions of people, something like this bound to happen at some point in time. That's not good enough. 
That's not good enough not to know. That's not good enough to say, to shrug your shoulders and say, that's just par for the course in a big city. I think we used to think that about other big cities that weren't Toronto. You'd hear about crime stories from New York or a freeway shooting in L.A. And, uh, and, and you'd hear about those things and think, well, thank goodness it doesn't happen here. What was usually happening there is now pretty commonplace here. But this was a new one for me. The man's been charged with attempted murder, assault with a weapon, common nuisance, endangering the lives, and mischief over $5,000 interfering with property. I think you get less relevant as those charges continue because he set a woman on fire. And this is not, again, uh, people have linked this with the TTC uh, subway shover, which was a woman pushing another woman, so it does seem. That's not what this is. Who's carrying a, uh, a fire accelerant with them? Who's carrying it on their person beyond somebody that I would consider um, bizarre, deranged, troubled? This is the start of, of my uh, unpaid analysis of this person. Or are they inherently evil, destructive, terrible, maniacal? Either way. Either way, whichever box you want to check, the, the, the adjectives I laid out the first time or the adjectives I laid out the second time, this is a person we should never allow on the streets again. There's two things we should do. If the man is guilty of the crime, and I, again, do I care if it's hate motivated? Um, <laughs> I guess I just care that it's a heinous, disgusting, awful, unspeakable crime. And this woman and the lives of those who know her and love her, her family, her friends, or work colleagues, etc., are altered forever because of his actions on Friday. That's the end of your freedom for me. That's it. That's all, that's all there is to say about this. Now, important that police lay this out and say it's an isolated incident. We're not worried about public safety. They have to say that, and they should say that. And for the most part, that's true. And I talked before the top of the hour about the things that are going to you know, aren't going to prevent a crime like this from happening. And the vast majority of them happen to be uh, things we've tried. But, well, we need more security. A security guard is going to prevent somebody who has designs on doing this. He's going to be standing at the right place at the right time, always to make sure that's not the case. Are you worried about repercussions? If you're willing to set, I'm going to say this again, set someone on fire. Are you terribly worried if you look over your shoulder and you see a security guard? You're not. You never would be. So, uh, no, I, I don't actually think. And, and we can't have a cop waiting at every bus stop. That's not <coughs> that's not a good use of uh, of efficiency. Here's what the mayor, John Tory, said about this particular incident. And I agree with him here. We're going to, again, uh, look at every measure that we can possibly take to have a greater presence of police on the system to make sure every possible measure can be undertaken. The TTC is very safe, but we can always uh, try to make it safer. Some of these kinds of random acts are difficult to you know, prevent. Now, wow, I say the TTC is safe. I say I've never had an incident. I've never been frightened. I've never been bothered. I've never been molested. I've never been... Uh, cornered, but that's me. Okay, I'm a five eleven and a half guy, and I weigh 196 pounds. I'd like to think I could defend my. Now I can't defend myself if someone's pouring gasoline on me and lighting a match, or in essence, what this person did. It's a shocking attack. It's a terrible attack, and the more we know about it, 
probably the better to feel safe, to understand that this person's either absolutely deranged and we can't we can't have this person on the street. We're not I, I'm not interested in rehabbing this person. Some people are. I'm not. I I stop at being a second chance person at moments like this. You've lost your ability for a second chance. If you threaten to do this, <laughs> you know, if you threat, I, I'm going to set this person on fire and you post about it and you talk about it and all that stuff. Then even at that point, I'm still wondering, what's our purpose here to make you better or to, or to make millions of people that this person will come into contact with over the next 30 years safe? Not sure that that it's the latter and not the former. Our text line, by the way, 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. Curious to know if you feel the same way as I do about this. It's a huge story. It kind of impacted me all weekend. And uh, I don't want to treat this like a normal assault. <laughs> not that an assault in any circumstance is acceptable. It isn't. It's not in the least. So I want to know what you think about that via text. I saw this story yesterday. Uh, The world governing body for swimming, FINA, decided to restrict participation of transgender athletes. Was this a long time coming? I'm not sure, but 71% of of members passed it. Here's the troublesome part. It will require transgender competitors to have completed their transition by the age of 12. 12 to be able to compete in women's competitions. Now, There's three layers to this conversation. There's three layers to fully understanding this. One is um, people can transition socially, if you will, at a younger age. Okay. And I want to be cautious and careful about this. Not because I'm worried about saying the wrong thing, because I don't feel any of those wrong things. But I want to make sure that I get this right, because I think we're all learning and understanding um, people's biology and the conversations that are more mature and nuanced than used to be about this stuff. There are people that don't think trans women are a threat to women's sports. There are people that are. I've listened to both sides. Two gay icons of women's tennis, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova, absolutely disagree on this. Martina says, absolutely not. Should anyone who was born a woman be able to win the Wimbledon ladies singles title? Billie Jean King says that they should be. Um, 12 is that weird arbitrary age to talk about this. Is everyone supposed to have passed through puberty at that point in time? I watched doctors last night dictate that there are three stages, social, medical involving hormones as in puberty blockers and surgical. So which of the three does FINA mean? Does the patient have to have undergone surgery at age 12? That's almost impossible. And there's going to be other sports examine this. I don't know that this sets a benchmark But I do know there's been enough reaction to this story that people are kind of breathing a sigh of relief in the swimming community. And yet, I wouldn't want somebody feeling as Leah Thomas feels, the NCAA women's swimming champion that was a male as recently as 19 months ago. 19 months ago, she was a male. She's now not a male anymore and is the first known transgender woman to win an NCAA swimming title. And she won it with ease and she's going to keep winning them. And she wants to swim in the Olympics and she wants to swim in national championships. And yesterday's ruling dictates that she won't. Sharon Davies, a former uh, women, women's swimming champion, said this about the ruling. I'm really proud of my my association to be the first to come forward and actually base their rules on proved science. You know, we've been asking for that for five years now. We've all we've ever wanted is to have fair sport for females. 
Look, um, some say, well, there's finally a sliver of sanity creeping through. Okay, fine. But I'm worried about the encouragement for children to transition if they're an elite athletes and are uncomfortable with their bodies. That's pretty standard when you're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, But FINA made a decision the NCAA seemed incapable of making as well. I think this is going to get a lot of reaction today, and we want to get ahead of it and advance it. So the balls move forward when it comes to university admissions, and next year should feel very, very normal. Uh, We're going to make sure it does. A lot was just blown up uh, for high school kids and university kids. If you're attending university this year as a first-year student and you didn't take a gap year, didn't take any time off, remember that halfway through your grade 10 year, you got everything, everything just exploded for all of us, obviously, and understandably so for the first few months. But admissions are through the roof at a lot of schools. And I got wind of this yesterday. If uh, a listener to the show direct messaged me uh, via Twitter at Greg Brady T.O., and he sent me the story in on Guelph today. Incoming University of Guelph students upset after being shout, uh, shut out of residence. So I read the story. It's got nothing to do with vaccination status or anything like that. Last year, understandably, that was a big topic at at this particular time. But Guy writes and uh, and his kid is involved. He says, my kid was the first to get accepted out of his group of friends that are attending Guelph. They all got into residence and he didn't. So his excitement has shattered a little bit. Um, lost the two years of high school because of COVID. Now the experience of first uni- year of university and being in res with his friends uh, taken away as well. Says that his kid would have chosen another university. They were told he was guaranteed residence first year, and he's not the only one. And I lived off campus first year, um, and uh, and I probably would have preferred being in residence. But but I also grew up in London my whole life, and I knew the city really well, and had a I was waiting tables. I sort of had a front facing job, so I love living on my own. But I bet you it's a scarier prospect now. And especially given what the last two or three years have been similar situation uh, in our next guest household. And she's kind enough to make time to join us to talk about it. Trisha Mumby is parent of a University of Guelph student that is uh, scheduled to go to Guelph uh, as a freshman uh, first year this fall. Trisha, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for uh, for allowing us to reach out to you and telling your story here. Thank you, Greg. Did I sort of summarize exactly what's happened? They uh, put a, yes. a, a large enrollment number. There's a lar- larger enrollment than they expected, and they can't meet demand for on-campus residents for everybody. But um, they're either doing it very randomly. They're not doing it based on first come, first serve. They're not doing it based on marks. Um, w- what's the explanation exactly for right. it? That's exactly right. And it's a very similar story to the one you just told. Uh, my daughter got a very early acceptance. She got scholarship offers. She's got an average of 96%. Um, she put in her applications for university very thoughtfully. Like I dragged her across the province, looking at schools, mm-hmm. looking at residences. We looked at Guelph three times to make sure it's where she wanted to go because she has a lot of anxiety around food and space and just everything like she, these COVID kids do. And you have to remember, she's 17 years old. They're a lot younger than we were when we went to university. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because I I had grade 13. I had yeah. um, I, I finished my th- OAC in half a semester. So I was sort of running around with Absolutely. older friends. I'm male. I'm sorry. That makes a difference. If I had a daughter moving it does make a difference. I- into an apartment first time, I never had to worry, to be honest, never had to worry about whether um, exactly I was walking right. down. A, I, I would walk down a dark alley to get to my house in first year university. I remember it extremely yep. well. 
She also plans to be a varsity athlete. Um, she's very involved in schools and clubs. So she, she chose her residences. So University of Guelph never, ever breathed a word of residents not being guaranteed. All they ever talked about was the ranking process. So she put a lot of effort into the ranking process, making sure she would be closest to the sports facility. That was important to her and where they had the food that was best for her. And so that all that was the only focus. If you go to admission.uofguelph.ca slash living today, it still says applications are made online. $750 deposit must be submitted by the deadline in order to guarantee space in residence. We felt all along it was guaranteed. We toured the campus three times. Like I said, no one ever said a word. And if you read the fine print, you know, you can find a spot where it says the 2020 in 2020, due to the pandemic, the pledge for guaranteed residence was canceled. I understand that due to social distancing and needing to keep people in separate rooms. Mm -hmm. I get it. I'm sure 2021 was weird too. A lot of kids weren't returning to campus for lots of reasons. This is different. And these kids have been so looking forward to this. They have had, as you said, a garbage high school experience and they need out. And from what I understand from the people I know, it seems to be people in Wellington, Waterloo um, region that have been excluded because they live too close. That's what, when I phoned the residence office, that's what they said, she should commute. Well, that is also unrealistic. A lot of these 17 year olds don't have their full license. And as if one friend said to me, am I supposed to buy a car? You're forcing kids to get a car, pay more for insurance, pay more for gas in this yeah. day and age. Um, and then that's hope not for a you, spot. The yeah, admissions that's not, officer said, don't worry, don't worry, ma'am. There will be so many dropouts. She'll get in by January. Well, how about letting a kid with very high marks who has a lesser chance of being um, unsuccessful at university have the spot in residence instead of waiting for a dropout? We're speaking with Trisha Mumby. She's parent of a of a, a a daughter that wants to go to University of Guelph. She's laid out um, a, a lot of that story. Tell me about the timeline. Then, when does she get accepted to Guelph? And when and wh- for how long do you go thinking everything's going to go according to plan and she'll be in res? Oh gosh, she got accepted very early. It was in the winter. I honestly can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, she got early acceptance into every university she applied to. She was offered scholarships at every university she applied to. And she turned them all down for Guelph. And that is also the kicker. This message came out after she had to turn every other university and residence down. Yeah. Like, that's just not fair. And to say to somebody, you know, to say to somebody that, well, we might have spots for you in January, you're already setting up where you're supposed to. Nobody's going to give you a four month lease. And if you do, that's going to be a bit of a, to be honest. That'll be a bit of a dive of a place if it's if it's open well, only for four it, months. That's not what any. That's not, not ideal. A seventeen-year-old girl who wants to be on campus at night to do varsity sports and things. Yeah. it's just not happening. And she's just crushed. These kids. I mean, my daughter. I guess I can only speak for my daughter, but I know it's true of many. They have got a lot of anxiety about change. The COVID has not been kind to them. The University of Guelph, part of what sold us on it, they have excellent, excellent student supports. Mm. And that's why she wants to go there. She wants to know that these study groups are available and the the residence dons are extremely well-trained. Everything about the program sounded excellent. And that's why it was chosen. So So it's... You you got to potentially, um, what are the options? Live off campus, go to Guelph. Would you consider going to another university? Um, We're going to look at that today. We spent the weekend looking at gap year options. Um, initially, I've always wanted her to take a gap year, frankly, like I don't feel like they're necessarily ready for university yet, you know, with the couple of years they've had and their age. But 
um, she didn't want to do it. So now we, we spent the weekend looking at that. And then today I am going to call the University of Waterloo and see what her options are still there because they actually offered her a bigger scholarship. Mm-hmm. And it's some would argue it's a better program. It's not her first choice. Like she she had her heart set on Guelph. So we'll have to, you know, wrap her head around that too. But I don't know. I think a gap year isn't isn't the worst thing to happen. But if if she wants to go back to Guelph, she needs some kind of guarantee for that year. And I know I know the university saying, well, you know, could we expand our residence? I'm not sure you can in two and a half months. Like these, well, are- they are talking about. We I phoned them on the week on Friday, and they are looking at hotels. They're like, we may put you up in a hotel. <laughs> that's not that's not what she's looking for either. No, that's and that's- and maybe it may it may sound like she's being a little too picky and inflexible, but. Like I said, she she needs the student supports. She does not adapt to change well. She really she really needs the, the assistance of the Dons, and she needs to be on campus. She needs to have the food plan where the food is there um, on campus. She cannot live in a hotel. Well, and some of that some of the scenarios you describe, not it's not just it, it it's partially exacerbated by the last two years. But you go to university. I've heard so many parents tell me this the last two years, Tricia. They go there, they get their independence. And, and even even when they come back after six weeks, they don't even recognize how confident and independent the kid is. So so everybody is going to you know have to push through stuff in in college and university. You did. I did. A bunch of our listeners did. But but they're not making it very easy. They're not setting that scenario up for success for kids. By especially by promising them one thing and then yanking the the carpet out. It's not like it's not like well, you just didn't have them. My scenario was you had to have an eighty to get into residence because I was a London uh, a London area resident, so I needed eighty and fell uh, a little. <laughs> I actually did fall a little bit short, um, but uh, but nonetheless, I knew the city so well as I laid out in the beginning, and that's that's not what this is. This is a totally different scenario where there was a promise made, and right now it's not being kept. That's right. And it's, it is just one more. I mean, honestly, I don't know if you have a kid in this age group, but it's just been one broken promise after another with COVID, like no high school dances, no this, no that they're getting a prom, which I'm delighted about, Yes, but they have, they've had nothing. They've had, they've had no sports. They didn't have offs. They didn't have so many of the opportunities that they were looking forward to in high school. So this is just one more, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I have a Trisha, I have a 10th grader and I've said this a million yeah. times. I want him to write exams. I wanted him to have exams oh in, in a normal another, semester. Absolutely. Like, like you're, you've got a daughter going to university where yes. there's pressure, never but written exam. Yeah. I, like maybe I'm romanticizing the pressure now in retrospect, but but I thought, no, it's it's go time. You study, you you know, you don't yeah. do well. You try and figure out what went wrong. This is life. Like you you have a that's bad day and figure reason. out how to make it better the next day. And that's that exam process helps kids do that. And that's another reason we chose Guelph. So Guelph does an amazing thing in their residences where they'll put students in on a floor with students in their program and they have mock midterms and mock finals and they study together and they're there for each other on the floor learning and their Dawn is in the same program typically. And I thought that was just amazing for Mm. academic support. Do you think the Holiday Inn is going to provide that? No, no, I don't. And uh, I, you know, I I know you'd get travel points for, uh, for later in the year potentially, (laughs) but that's not, that's not it's worthy. Not the same. I'll tell you what. Charlotte Yates is the president of the University of Guelph. I'm going to try and get her on our show uh, later on this week and uh, and ask about this because I know people might roll their eyes and say, "Are there bigger things during COVID?" No, no, not everybody should advocate for the people closest to them and in their household. That's 
that's where we are now. And, uh, and well, there's going to be a bigger problem. Like yeah. is it that this generation is going to have a disengagement issue. hundred percent. They are, they have been through stuff yeah. and it's, a, it's about being let down by systems. Yeah. No, no. And I'm, that it will linger with them. So it is, I, it is going to become a thing. I, I'm with you and we're going to follow up this story on this show. I think, I thank you very much for the time, Trisha. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. You got it. Trisha Mumby's a parent of a, a girl who wants to go to university of Guelph. Stellar athlete, stellar student, and uh, unable to uh, to go into residence right now. And she was sure for months on end that she'd be able to. It was just a ghastly weekend of gun violence, um, and it seemed to start Saturday night. We've gone from talking a lot about carjackings in the city um, to gun violence, and I'd love not to talk about it. And often we don't because I don't. It's a news story, but I don't have a solution for it. And I often. You become numb to this stuff, and it's awful that we're talking about that. But when a 15-year-old is shot and a 16-year-old is shot, not so much. Alex Lee uh, for the Toronto uh, Police Force was covering um, off a lot of what happened over the weekend yesterday. First of all, Friday, he was at this terrible incident with the TTC. We played a clip from him last hour, but, uh, but ended up speaking to these shootings and how harrowing and concerning it is for entire communities here. You know, it, it's concerning, right? Especially with uh, y- y- young people being shot. Both were rushed off to hospital in critical condition. It's tough any day, uh, but especially on, on, on Father's Day. And, and many of us are fathers, and, and this hits home, you know? Uh, and it does, uh, it is a cause for concern, but we want to reassure the community that we have all support that have been brought upon uh, with us, with uh, the Toronto Police, as well as victim services to assist these families. Uh, And uh, we will ensure that the community feels safe and supported uh, during this time. Okay. Now, so incidents like this aren't new. And there was the uh, well-known Summer of the Gun uh, back uh, a few years ago. Mark Saunders was police chief back in 2019. You might even remember Every weekend, it felt like we were talking about these things. And we were talking about, remember, after the Raptors parade and celebration, pretty high-profile incident when shots are ringing out with a million fans gathering in Nathan Phillips Square. You might have been one of those fans. And four people were injured in the shooting. A lot of people hurt when there was a stampede of, of panic, and understandably so. Mark Saunders said this about gang influence, and we're not saying these things quite as often, it feels like, anymore as we were three summers ago. This recent gun activity... These shootings that have happened over the past 10 days, uh, by and large, have street gang connotations to them or are street gang related. And the vast majority of them, we cannot exclude street gang subculture activity to it. So that's from three summers ago. And obviously, Mark Saunders uh, departed last year. Chief uh, Interim Chief James Raymer is, uh, is the police chief of Toronto. Everybody I've spoken to says the firearms bill that that, you know, the liberal government's putting together, the idea of a handgun ban. The liberals were resisting that back in 2018. But this won't stop this kind of violence. That seems to be the perspective. I want to bring on Evelyn Fox. She's kind of to join us, founder of Communities for Zero Violence. Evelyn, thank you very much for making the time. I know what a difficult subject this is, but I know how active and how passionate you've been about trying to prevent stories like this over the weekend. So I thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Do I have that right that there's very little um, that a federal handgun ban will do to prevent things uh, like this over the weekend or, or, or could it prevent some of it to, to, to an extent? No, no. If the, the handgun ban I've been saying for years is not going to do anything regarding the street level violence that you're seeing today. Um, 
there was after my son was killed in 2016, I found out that after the year of the gun in 2005, there was a provincial report done regarding the roots of youth violence. And it's I've also found out that every level of government has done nothing but cut to those very recommendations that were set out in that report. And it's constantly on the table in the focus of the the gun ban when they know that the gun ban won't will not do anything. It's it's not even a band-aid solution because the amount of firearms we have flowing across the border is asinine. There's just before people used to share firearms. Now it's like they have multiple firearms. And we have children who are picking up these guns for whatever the reason may be that they feel that they need them. So I mean I think that the government plays on the fact that people don't know what our firearm laws are like in Canada. They're actually very strict. They look to the mm -hmm. U.S. and they see what's going on in the U.S., but they don't realize that the U.S. firearm laws are not, they're trying to achieve what we have. So, I mean, if the focus, we have enough laws, the focus should be on the things that create the violence especially with poverty. Like I keep saying this, poverty breeds the violence. And we have had in the past, even since my son was killed, the, the poverty level and the split, the financial division within Canada has increased so substantially. It's like, look at everything mm -hmm. we're talking about now. People can't afford their homes. They can't afford to feed their families. It's either you pay rent or you and starve or you start or you feed yourself and you can't pay rent. So, I mean, these are all things that that breed into that. Evelyn Fox is kind of to join us in Toronto today. I'll read you a Mark Saunders quote from three summers ago. I've said in the past that the expectations are we're going to arrest ourselves out of this. We simply are not. There are social issues that are related to this. People are not born to be street gang members. It takes a multi pronged approach to get this right. Is that even more true right. than it was three years ago? Most definitely. Most definitely. For sure. So when Saunders says that there are people and, uh, you know, it does occur that it, it floats to the to the forefront of my brain once in a while to talk about at the minimum stiffer sentences for gun use. There is that the, like those are two different things. We can't arrest ourselves out of the problem, as the former police chief says, but we can certainly make sure that people that use guns aren't back on the street as quickly as they are. That that, in essence, seems to be the most frustrating aspect. When you talk to law enforcement, they say we do the work, we get we get people in front of the judge, they get even convictions. But then 18 months, 24 months later, um, because maybe they didn't murder somebody, they're right back out there and the same behavior is, is exhibiting itself. Right. But then you also have the fact that these kids don't care about whether or not they live or die. So then you have kids who are involved mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily have to be gang involved. They just have to be caught with a firearm. And we don't know the background story as to why they picked up the firearm to begin with. But if you're handing them out a sentence and they don't already care and you're not even trying to rehabilitate them before they come back out or provide them any types of services before they come back out, what do you think is going to happen when they come back out? They're going to come back hardened even worse than when they went in. So there's a disconnect. We can't we have to look at why people pick up these firearms in the first place. I mean, the, 
the same issues they have once they go in, they're still going to have multiplied on top of their gang called their, their prison culture back when they return into the street. What does that do to our society? Like yeah. we, we have to think about it on a, on a social approach, like in terms of compassion and, and that type of stance, because if we don't, that that's why people, the government doesn't feel like the people whose lives are being taken every single day are valuable because we have that, Oh, this person, what this victim is innocent. Whereas this victim was not innocent. We need to take that off the table. Every life, every person's life is valuable. Every person who's part of a gang, they have people who love them and will be traumatized and devastated if their life is taken. We don't know the background as to what occurred, why they got involved in a gang in the first place. So, I mean, we have to stop stigmatizing the victims. You being part of a gang does not mean that you should be murdered. And that's why none of the things in the recommendation regarding the roots of youth violence are are invested in because the government does not feel that those are innocent enough victims and people like my son who was hit with a stray bullet, yeah. their collateral damage and oh well. So that upsets me. Yeah. That really upsets me because everybody's life is valuable. We should not, we don't have the death penalty. We shouldn't be determining who's an innocent victim and who's not a victim, an innocent victim. That that needs to stop. Well, we're talking about kids. I mean, when you see it must have such a visceral effect for you to see a 15 and 16 year old. How old was your son when he passed away? He was 26. So imagine 15, 16, right? Imagine. Yeah, a, no, a, I imagine can't. it. Yeah. Uh, and, and on Father's Day, no less. So I think that hit all of mm-hmm. us viscerally to the point where we're thinking you can get to these kids. You can change change things around for them. And no, no one's mm-hmm. born into a street gang, but you sure can be born into circumstances that you know make that decision that you make um that's you know, right like even when when you're 13 evelyn when i'm 13 we're not fully formed human beings we make lots of mistakes and we'd be a victim of of whatever circumstances happen to be around us at the given time so i've talked to former street gang members and i'm sure you have and, and they say thank goodness someone got to me thank goodness mm-hmm. i didn't thank goodness i didn't meet an untimely fate at 15 or 16 and thank goodness someone mm-hmm. put me on 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 the proper road to figuring out what I needed to be and what I shouldn't be anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Does the city, I, I, I look at the mayor. This is what, this is me talking to you. I look at the mayor and I think there's very little, I think a a municipality can do specifically for this. We know that story. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll put the lens back on the media and say, sometimes we, we make a bigger story out of, um, out of, You know, when it happens in a more affluent neighborhood, look, when I I understand why when Mitch Marner gets carjacked, that's a different story than when a nameless, faceless person does. Everybody listening understands that. But I also don't know what what can be done at a municipal level, which is why the mayor has asked for, um, you know, federal help, provincial help, police help. How do you view it? That's a very touchy subject for me because Mm -hmm. since John Tory has become mayor, the violence in our city has escalated substantially. And he has selective empathy for the victims as well. And majority of the time, he will not even speak about the gun violence going on in the street. Um, Mm. It wasn't until that 12-year-old boy was hit by by the stray bullet that he went out into the community and actually had something to say. But um there's okay for instance Swansea Muse 
um, housing project right now is being evacu evacuated because of um, structural damages that yeah. um, were, they're saying that it was since its inception. So the city of Toronto owns all the public housing inside of the city of Toronto yeah. and is one of the worst landlords in the city. We have stuff like this where all these all these residents are being displaced out of their homes because TCHC hasn't done the appropriate repairs and things that need to be done over the years. So like I said, with poverty and housing, mm -hmm. we have, we don't have housing to place these people in it. Toronto is absolutely unaffordable. One thing would be to ensure that there's affordable housing. Yeah. All these buildings that are going up, they should have a certain amount of, units that are subsidized to allow people to be to be placed into and not just yeah. a small yeah. quarter fraction. So he John Tory wrote a report even before the roots of empathy the roots of youth violence report came out in a plea for premier which had the exact same recommendations as the roots of youth violence. He knows very well what mm. his his stance and his um priorities should be. Evelyn, I got so, I, I got to leave it there, but let's I want to have more conversations about this uh, and and sooner rather than later. OK, I really sure. appreciate you coming on today and giving your perspective on this. Thank you. Evelyn Fox is founder of Communities for Zero Violence. Talking earlier, uh, four for four quiz. Dave Bradley mentioned uh, that it's uh, an anniversary of the release in 1975. All you people in our older demo remember well of the movie Jaws. And so we thought, why not a quiz about the movie Jaws, since we were all saying that we'd seen it and uh, whatnot. What a great thing that would have been, that, to have a cameo in that, even to be a victim, even to be a shark victim, <laughs> yeah, David. True, actually, yeah. never the body really, at the beginning, that's the very it. beginning that rolls up on the beach. Why not? You're yeah. probably still getting residuals from that, too. I think so. You <laughs> yeah. don't know that you are, but yeah, you're spending an hour in makeup. They're removing, like, limbs and eyeballs and whatnot, and... Uh, However, if I was in the water, the shark would still be chewing on me. You think? I don't know about that. Does it not like? It may not like certain tastes of yeah. uh, of of it spit me out too grisly. It, like it eats like snow tires. So here's uh so here's our four quickie uh, questions about Jaws. The shark, the actual great white shark that terrorizes Amity Island, appears first on screen in minute forty one, minute sixty one, or minute eighty one. Sheba? 41. Dave? I think it's uh, minute 81, actually. Gord? Well, let's go 61. It is 81. Oh. Yeah. Oh. It's a two-hour movie, and you do not see the shark until an hour and 21 minutes in. That's what oh, made wow. it so scary, is that your mind makes it far <laughs> more frightening than the actual shark itself. The I'm told the most frightening thing to the mind is the unknown. Exactly. I don't know about that, though. Uh, see, I'm contradicting myself by saying I know about that. <laughs> the shark, I think this is, I think this is an easy one. The shark's name on set. They just call it a shark and they'd be like, because sometimes the shark wouldn't work. It was a mechanical shark. The shark's name was Frank, Sharky, or Bruce. Dave? <laughs> Frank is a good one. Um, Bruce, I think. Sheba? Bruce is what I'm thinking. Gordon? It is Bruce. It is okay. Yeah, it is Bruce. <laughs> so that's where they got it from for ne Finding Nemo. That 
Who's who's yeah, Bruce in Finding you're, Nemo? You're probably right. One of the shark, uh, the fish are friends, not uh, yeah. food. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like the main shark who goes vegetarian. He's the biggest, scariest one, and his name is Bruce. I didn't know that was from. Jaws. I did not actually know that either. That's uh, that's a new one that I uh, hadn't heard of. You know what we're doing? We're learning. He, yeah, yeah. That's what the <laughs> point is. Um, okay, so Jaws is adapted from Peter Benchley's best-selling novel. Uh, one of these was a other title idea before Benchley settled on Jaws. And I don't think any of these work necessarily for the film. So I want you to find the real, sorry, the fake title out of these three proposed titles for Benchley. He was going to call the book and subsequently the movie The Silence of the Deep. Not the lambs, but the deep. Uh, the Stillness in the Water or The Jaws of Death. Which is the mm. fake name amongst all those? Gord? What was the first one? The stillness in the water? The silence so, of the deep. The stillness the in the water and <laughs> the jaws of death. It sounds That's, like a prescription I'm yeah, getting at the doctors. Let's go for the first one. Is the is the silence, silence of the, the deep. deep. Yeah. Okay. Sheba? Yes, the fake name is Silence of the Deep. <laughs> Dave? I'm going to go with that one as well. It just sounds... Uh... Yeah. No, very. it's the jaws of death. You're I just me. added some extra words and put the jaws no in there. Way. See, I thought they would just knock off the other words and then be like, hey, it's not a bad uh, name. You would think so as well. The other one was uh, Leviathan Rising. I'm like, no one's oh. going to go yeah, see that movie. That, that sounds no. complicated. Yeah. It's going to wonder yeah, Exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, uh, and finally, the uh, 65 day shoot ballooned into how many days to shoot Jaws? 90, 135, 159. Shiva? I'm going to go with the middle, 135 days. Okay, Dave? Since you said ballooned, I'm going to go with 159. <laughs> uh, and Gordon? Yeah, I think that's the right one because Spielberg at the time, he was, it was really bad for him. The shark didn't work. And the balloon yep. to 159 days and uh, over budget. And, yeah. And I think it's 159. And, and uh, it is 159. And people mm. just wanted them out of there. Like they took yeah. over like the whole town. All the townies mm. said, come on, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're taking drink, up our beach, You're man. drinking yeah. all our booze. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're <laughs> dating our women. You're dating our men. Get out. Leave us alone. You're breaking up marriages. Get the get out of here. Shaw alone drank all the booze. Well, they were supposed to make the movie in Chris. It, the movie was supposed to come out Christmas 74, and it was delayed so long. They're like summer 75. But that, that's logical now. Yeah. Why would you release a movie about a shark and a beach at Christmas time? Yeah, exactly. And things work out for a reason. Makes no sense. Yeah. Why would you re like like would you release um what's the movie? It's a Wonderful Life in July? No. Yeah, no. no. They're Christmas movies for a reason. Yeah, Although Die Hard's not a Christmas movie because it came out in the summer of '88. That's the biggest reason. <laughs> Let's not start that. I stand argument. by. Oh, that. <laughs> yeah. Then we'll get to the hot dog yeah, as a sandwich yeah. thing before nine o'clock. <laughs> All the great mental floss esque arguments. Have you been? to see your family physician. I've never seen such a divergence of, well, it's not an opinion, just factual statements. Yes, he or she is seeing in-person patients. No, he or she isn't yet. And heaven forbid specialists, podiatrists, right? Podiatrists, like people that look at feet. How do you do that on virtual? How, do you, how are you able to swing that? My wife had an earache at one time. I think she thought she had water in her ear and she had a virtual appointment for that. Now, this was in early days in the uh, in the pandemic. And again, before the pandemic ended several weeks ago, I think we looked and thought, well, there's going to be a bit of a rush 
back to these doctor's offices. We're going to drop some of the regulations for it. I think I told you that I took my kid to a walk-in clinic where we were masked up. We're both in N95 masks. I think they had just dropped the mask mandate for schools. But I said, buddy, we should do this uh, because we're in a medical clinic. You can't have a choice but to be there or not. And if, regardless of debating you know, the effectiveness of the masks at that point in time, and, and I hadn't been sick yet, and he, he had had COVID, so in like the two weeks earlier, but we put them on anyway, and we sat there for borderline three hours. And there's a huge reason that we've been talking about on Toronto Today for quite a while, why we see, we've seen these headlines, emergency rooms overflowing. Mm-hmm. because emergency rooms got overwhelmed because people weren't going in to see their doctor because they couldn't. Stefan Burrell's an epidemiologist. He's been on the show before. I like his approach, and he wrote this on Twitter over the weekend. It made me think about it in juxtapose with an interview I saw Friday that we're going to play you a clip from in just a sec. Uh, me, meaning Stefan Burrell, not actual me. Me. So when was the last time you saw your regular doctor for Condition X? Patient. Well, haven't been able to see them since before COVID. Me. So you haven't seen them in over two years. Patient. I guess so. And he writes, and we wonder why emergency rooms are overwhelmed. But we also wonder why elective surgeries are so urgent by a certain point in time. Because we haven't kept up on our checkups. Now, remember, you might see people say, well, COVID caused this backlog of surgeries. Eh, Yes. Yes and no. COVID restrictions caused many of these backlogs of surgeries. COVID reactions um, and fears caused people not to go potentially to their doctor's office or even to a clinic. But these doctor's offices, as noted, haven't been open. And I got a lot of reaction to talking to a few, you know, a few GPs, a few infectious disease specialists about this over the weekend. I'm sure you've heard her on the the station before, and I know I've talked to her a few times. Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Now, I learned a few things about the Canadian Medical Association over the weekend. I'm going to share with you in a minute or two. But she's speaking with David Common on CBC, and I'm not a fan of false equivalencies, like ever. But I spot this right here, and David Common asked what I think is, it's a bit of a loaded question, but it's designed and to get a to initiate a response here. Here's David Common asking Dr. Catherine Smart about wait times and overcrowded hospitals. And it doesn't really get to the crux of why these things are happening, but I'll explain that after you hear this clip. It seems like we've moved past that rather quickly, right? As vaccination rates have gone up and cases have gone down, and we're talking more about wait lines at airports than wait times in hospitals. Do you think the country's just moved on a little bit too quickly from what is happening in the health system in the wake of the worst days of the pandemic? I think that's always the problem when a crisis is going on for a long time, right, is people get fatigued hearing about it. And I think that is a worry. And I absolutely agree with you when people are more outraged about waiting four hours in airport security than three years for hip replacement. Like we've sort of lost the plot there about what's important. And I think that's why conversations like this are so important. You know, people have an expectation that when they need the healthcare system, it's going to be there. And I think right now people are showing up and realizing, wow, this is not what I was expecting or it's not showing up for me in the way I thought or for my family member. Okay, so that's David Cochran with Dr. Catherine Smart. Listen, um, Dr. Smart deserves respect, but she's been one that's pushed the COVID fear quite considerably. A lot of the backlogs of surgeries have been a result of doctors thinking it's not safe for me to go in 
and operate my clinic. It's not safe for me to be in as a general practitioner. And even if I was open, I can't comfortably send somebody to go get a scan, to go get an MRI, to go get an ultrasound, all that stuff that ends up being necessary. I'm still hearing, still hearing 28 months in from listeners who are, you know, about to have a child for the first time, spouses, husbands, uh, prospective fathers, a day after Father's Day, I'm telling you this story, and they're not allowed in for ultrasounds and screenings and meetings. Those are seminal, massive moments. And you might, you know, say, what's the big deal at the time? But if I look back and think, what was I away for? And I, I was working, by the way, when we were about to have our second child, I was working a lot in Toronto while my wife was still in Michigan. So I missed those appointments. It's tough. It's tough going to bed that night feeling like you're missing that stuff. The second part of the problem with Catherine Smart's answer is it's the patented example of a false equivalency. Nobody thinks that a wait time at Pearson Airport or having your luggage come around on the little whirly thing that it comes around on is more significant than someone missing an important surgery for, you name it, colorectal cancer, for a hip replacement where they where they wake up in pain every single day. No one thinks that. The thing is, we're just able, many of us are, to walk and chew gum at the same time. And by the way, we've realized the inefficiencies of Ontario's hospital system way before 2020, way before it. And uh, and yeah, I, I, I had a doctor reach out to me and tell me respiratory tract infections uh, are a very common primary care visit. That's exactly what you would go see a GP for. You wouldn't go to an emergency room. You wouldn't go to a walk-in clinic. So guess what happens when that becomes virtual? Nothing. Nothing really changes. People will either ixnay on the virtual appointment or they won't get seen properly and perhaps won't get diagnosed properly. I don't doubt doctors have had to do things virtually and do the best they can on it. And I've heard some people say, well, the virtual appointment is here to stay. Maybe for quick, um, perfunctory conversations about something that's really wrong. But you can't do a cancer screening virtually. You can't look at somebody uh, who has toe fungus virtually and tell them what you can't have toes held up to the screen and have a good sense of it. You can't do it with a urinary tract. And I can keep going. OK, but you're having breakfast. So I found the answer kind of embarrassing. And by the way, the CMA, it doesn't represent Canada's doctors any more than anything I'm saying this morning represents I don't, all radio hosts, all media. Of course it doesn't. I had it described by a doctor I trust as an opt-in organization that's there for advocacy and education. It costs $200 a year to join, which may not seem like much to somebody working in the medical world, but this guy, uh, this physician found it an absolute waste of money and didn't think it served much practical purpose, the CMA. So it's not it's not like we're, we're putting airports ahead of healthcare. No one's doing that. Or wait times for travelers. You might say, hey, first world problems. We live in the first world and our tourism industry matters and jobs are on the line and people's existences and livelihoods are on the line. OK, it's tense times right now economically and every little delay does matter, whether it's for an important surgery or whether you're headed to the hospital. Um, let me bring up this. I saw this over the weekend with regard to fathers and thought a lot about Father's Day yesterday. I, I had a more pensive Father's Day, I suppose, because things feel more normal than they have the last couple of days. And I've been a father since, what are we talking, Father's Day of 2006. 
And I thought about how it seems to be more important than my birthday. And there's a new study that came out about boys and their biological father. Boys who grew up apart from their biological father are two times more likely to land in prison or jail by age 30. That's not about where you live. That's not about the color of your skin. That's not about your parents' education level. You grow apart from your you grow up apart from your biological father. You're two times more likely to end up in prison or jail by age 30. That's unbelievable to me. I couldn't believe that. Fatherlessness is a better predictor of incarceration than race or growing up poor. Now, this is a U.S.-based study, but you tell me, why would it be any different in Canada? I can't imagine that it would be. There's more than enough conversations about these kind of things that really make you sit up and say, we can't let young men fall behind in school, fail to launch. That's You've heard the phrase failure to launch in their 20s or run afoul of their law. And men are more likely to do that from fatherless homes. The first thing you hear of when you see terrible story about a mass shooting, you think two things. I think two things anyway. One, I almost know for certain it's a young male. I almost know that for certain now at this point in time. And the second thing I think, where's dad? Of course, mom factors in there as well. Of course she does. That's really, really important for that to be the case. But things have changed a little bit. And I think there's a little bit more of a focus on watching teenage boys. We were talking about it Friday leading into Father's Day and uh, and making certain that ends up being the case. So there's a lot you have to do as a father. Um, there's a lot you have to do. But to tell your kids to you know avoid the toxic masculinity is not the easiest thing on the planet in this day and age. Okay, Being a man is still a phrase. Being a woman is still a phrase. It's not just about physical strength and hard work. But the best thing you can do for your kids... And this is not meant to be a PSA. Be a gentleman. Be patient. Be kind. Be giving. Be loving. And end up putting away your childishness. Know what's right. Stand firm in that. Ask questions. Admit when you're wrong. Those are really, really important things. Being there is a big step, but being there and being present is another thing as well. Hope you had a great Father's Day yesterday. So that'd be that for Active TO. Um, as uh, Sean McAuliffe wrote a column, and we've talked to Sean before. Uh, he's a contributing columnist, and uh, he's quite an advocate, certainly, for the city of Toronto, but uh, wants wrongs to be righted is the best way I can put it. And transportation in the city is always going to be controversial. This is, you can't make anybody unanimously happy about anything in 2022. And certainly how we handle our roads, how we get around, how we stay active, all those things that sort of, you know, jam together for Active TO, and especially in the heart of the pandemic, was a difficult thing to make everybody uh, happy about. It was a really interesting read over the weekend. I want to bring on Albert Cole, who's the founder of Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition and a uh, road safety advocate. Uh, that's on the business card, I think. Albert, uh, thanks very much for making the time for our audience today. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Tell me a little bit. So you read Sean's column. You gave it a retweet and a, and a hearty endorsement. What does he get right about this? What do we what do we look inside the city of Toronto and say, you know, we're making the same mistakes over and over again, and we're being we're being kind of hypocrites about it. That's that's sort of the call out from Sean to uh, to our city. I think the one of the central uh, issues is that our city is uh, changing. So if you look at uh, some of the data, uh, a recent poll showed or before the pandemic that 59% of people in the city walk, cycle or transit as their primary mode of uh, transportation. So, so we know our city's changing, especially the central city 
hundreds of thousands of people are moving into that part of the city. So our city's changing. So there is a huge demand. And that's not just during the pandemic. There's a huge demand for better walking, cycling and transit conditions. So, so you're right, you're not going to satisfy everyone. But we know um, the context, which is that we need to deal with climate change, we need to deal with uh, the road danger and with air pollution, health and so on. I guess we'd make the distinction. Let's say there's 100 people representing uh, 100%. There are some people that need to drive. I mean, that need to drive for their work or um, they're taking multiple people at multiple times, Albert. But but I think the distinction Sean makes, and I feel it too when I'm, when I'm in the core of the city, is that there's so much congestion. There's so many cars. I think there should be streets. I even think Young and Dundas Square, we could either have a congestion charge or, or get to the point like a lot of major cities where we don't allow cars uh, e- even into that environment. I think the goal is sort of to inch along at a time and and make less people drive in the city core, bottom line. Yeah, and especially looking at the context of um, active TO, to we're talking about uh, weekends, Saturday and Sunday. And, uh, you know, we had the uh, uh, letter from the um, uh, head of uh, the Blue Jays saying that uh, people can't get to the game. Well, the truth is that it would be a lot harder for people to the ga- get to the game if we were to cut out to transit. That's the primary mode of, mm-hmm. of probably most people getting to Blue Jays games. So, so, so we know that we need to change in terms of how we get around the city. And Sundays and Saturdays, there's ideal time to say to people, time to leave your car at home, get on the uh, go train, which is underutilized on weekends, get on the subway, which carries, you know, a thousand people in a single uh, train. So there are options, especially on the weekends when we've got underutilized uh, transit capacities. And that's the way we have to go for some of the reasons I I mentioned, not only to reduce traffic congestion, but to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce air pollution, reduce uh, the road danger. I was in um, Detroit last week and I saw outside um, the ballpark there uh, and I'd never seen it when I lived there, but I think it's a new modern invention. And I saw it in Los Angeles as well in February. These scooters that are available for rent. And I know a lot of North American cities have them. A lot of European cities have them. How much would like rent a scooters, renting an electric bike or an electric scooter make a difference in terms of somebody saying, well, I, I know I can get from point A to point B and I can get there faster walking uh, I can get there faster than walking with with one of these electric scooter rentals. Why are we so Why are we so stuck on not allowing these? Uh, well, well, for for example, I mean, electric bikes are real game changers. So a couple of weeks ago, I went, I rented an electric bike for my wife, and we mm. cycled down. We're at Bathurst and Bloor. We cycled down to the beaches, about eleven kilometers. So that's a, a trip we wouldn't have done before by bicycle. Now that's a real easy option for people. So so electric bikes increase your range, probably double your range. So all of a sudden person says, well, I live 10 kilometers away. I can't uh, cycle down to uh, the uh, Blue Jays stadium. Now that's, that's changed. The dynamics change. So, so electric vehicles, especially things like electric bikes are a real game changer that make it so much easier for people, not only to get, for example, to the go station, but to get to the game itself or so, to other downtown venues. So do you have a philosophy? Why, why we just, we just seem to not even open, open the box to some extent and have a conversation about these things here in Toronto. Why do, why do we not even want to talk about the pros and cons of this? Well, there's no doubt that there is an expectation been created. And I, I think city hall is complicit in this where it says to motorists where you can drive anywhere, anywhere, 
any time you mm-hmm. want. And we're, we'll make sure you have parking as well. But we know like a city that's growing at the rate Toronto is growing and the problems that we're facing, that's no longer realistic. Unfortunately, we still hear city hall saying to people, well, you have a you know right to complain. No one ever says, leave the car at home, especially Saturday and Sunday, get on the GO train, get on the subway. We don't hear our politicians saying that. I, I heard a great comment at the debate where one of the councillors said, I wish we'd be as fervent about uh, defending the motorist right to drive downtown as we are about dealing with uh, transit uh, delays. I thought that was a really excellent comment. We see a lot of fervor around uh, defending the motorist's right to go anywhere, anytime, but we don't see the same thing for creating safe walking cycling conditions and improving transit. Yeah, I think all all of that is true. Albert Cole's uh, joining us, Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition. Um, and I think about the go train and I know I use this example multiple times, but if me and three friends want to get on a train and come down on a Saturday night downtown to a Leafs game or a Raptors game, we're spending about $82. I live in Ajax. It's that's a big ask. There's got to be some kind of a group rate. There's got to be some kind of a, um, you know, like some kind of middle ground here because any of us would say, I, why are we spending $80 when we can put, you know, even now, $12, we can spend $12 a gas and park for $20 and we've got 50 left over collectively. Like those are the decisions. And you know more than ever, Albert, those are the decisions people are are trying to make for their own wallets. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And uh, the fact that we don't, you know, we don't look at this issue. We simply say, you know, the motorist is inconvenienced. Let's address that. Instead of saying, well, how could we make it easier for people to get uh, a downtown, maybe increase during a Blue Jays game, for example, increase the number of go trains uh, that serve the area, maybe have a family like a cheaper. I know there's a family pass, mm-hmm. maybe reduce those, those rates. And at the same time, we make it too easy for motors. We still have, and I know motors complain about the price of gas and the price of parking, but the truth is most of our parking, uh, much of the parking is still underpriced and that's motivating people. And, you know, you and I probably know lots of people driving from Burlington or Oakville and they say, I'm going to drive in, uh, drive into the city and then I'm going to park under your street. Well, I think a lot <laughs> of us downtown would say, well, couldn't you consider taking the go train? It'd be so much easier. You're not going to have the hassle of looking for parking. These are the things we need to, to address, making, uh, mm. sending the message to people that that's just not the way we do things in, in the central city or in the city in general. We have different ways of doing things. And in Toronto, as I mentioned, walking, cycling and transit not only are now the majority in many cases of community commuting trips, but they're also the trend as more people move into high rises. The trend is to more cycling, walking and transit. And that's what we've got. Yeah, to I, yeah. The, the amount of people I know that live downtown that have just gotten rid of their cars or they've moved here and and haven't and 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 sold it before they even got here. It's an endless. It, it's it's a much bigger number than it was a decade ago. Albert, I enjoyed our conversation. Hopefully, we can talk again. These are important issues for people that live in the core and, and that come in to, downtown to work as well. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks, Greg. Albert Cole, uh, founder of Toronto Community Bikeways Coalition. Tomorrow night, though, we're all going to gather around uh, the old uh, television set. We'll be watching for the summer forecast from Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist. It's not tonight. It's tomorrow night during the uh, Global News at 530 and Global News at 6. And Anthony Farnell, our friend, joins us right now. Wow, you're going to have a lot of people with notebooks and their Google calendars and Oh my gosh, this is like this is um this is a big thing. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big thing, and uh, it's a little later than, than normally we issue these seasonal forecasts. But uh, it's kind of one of those summers that I think giving us a little extra time was good. And uh, yeah, it, it's I'm 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 gonna go over it now with with you guys, so you don't have to wait. You you should because well, we're going to watch, to... but you're just giving us a sneak peek. This is this is the exclusive. Exactly. This is like this is like membership content here. This is good. It, okay. Yes. Yes. Let's go with that. So uh, <laughs> so yeah. I mean. Uh, uh, I I personally think it's going to be a, a great summer. I, I think it is slightly above seasonal overall. Uh, we're we're going to build some of that heat late, so August September. Uh, that's been a theme lately, where where summers kind of extend into fall almost, and I do think that's going to continue. So that's that's kind of where where we're at temperature wise. Uh, a lot of back and forth. That's something that uh, we've already seen, where you get these small bouts of heat and humidity we're going to see another day or two of it this week and then it just backs off it's going to be focused uh, back to our west that's the big heat ridge that we're watching build now uh and we're just going to get occasional bouts of, of the real hot stuff so yeah so kind of hot hot then cool then repeat that's sort of it instead of lather and rinse it's heat then cooler then repeat yeah and, and i mean this past weekend was an example it was actually quite chilly, uh, but the sun is out during the day. It, it's very comfortable. Maybe it's not the best for beach conditions, but if you're doing any other type of event, it, it was it was pretty nice overall. The, I was at the Jays game on Saturday. It was just perfect. We weren't baking in our seats. Uh, so that's kind of where we're seeing at least heading through the beginning of July, and, and then I think we are going to still have a bout where it, it does warm up. And, and in some of my research, it's been incredible. July... Um, the last time it was below seasonal for that month was, was 2014. In September, it hasn't been since 2013 that it's been below average. So, so we're in kind of a, I mean, making a warmer than normal summer forecast is, is you're not going out on a limb. Let's say it, let's say it that way. <laughs> now, uh, summer just after 5 a.m. tomorrow. And, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, just like snap of a finger. We go, we go from, in essence, a high of 22 today to a high that's nine degrees higher than I'm seeing. And the Humidex is going to push us closer to 36, 37. So like you said, within, within basically an 18, 24-hour span, that's a major change. And what, Humidex over 40 as well later in the week. Yeah, yeah. Wednesday, I, I think we have a shot at maybe 42, 43, uh, rivaling what we, we saw just last week with that heat and humidity. So uh, it's a two-day event for, for southwestern Ontario, even into the London area. It's going to be just sticky tomorrow. And then Wednesday, the rest of us that haven't joined in yet really get into the the, the muggy bath. But uh, right now, if you look up and, and you're maybe driving in the car, you see all this cloud around, that's the warm front. It's just draped right across us. There are going to be some showers maybe later this afternoon, which is good because uh, with all that wind the last few days and, and the low, low humidity levels, uh, the ground's just dried out completely. Yeah, so, you know, it's not your your uh, your neighbor uh, maybe attempting to annoy you saying, well, we need the rain. And you'll look at them and you're like, what do you what did you live through April here? And and but we do we do probably need yeah. it like like the, those those front lawns start to look a little brown patchy uh, and they will if we don't get any precipitation this week. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. And I think there's a, a shot at it, but we're into the, the pattern now where, where it's not widespread. So maybe one neighborhood says, okay, yeah, we've had tons of rain. And then a, another neighborhood hasn't had it in, in a week and a half. So uh, it's an important time of year for that, not just because of your backyard lawn, but also uh, if we do get into a drier type pattern for a couple of weeks, 
that that affects the weather. It actually can lead to, to more heat waves. So that's something that we got to keep an eye on if, uh, if this is going to get maybe out of control hot later this summer. But right now I, I see these thunderstorm complexes coming in every couple of days, refreshing the air. And that's something we've already had to deal with. And, and I see it continuing. So a lot of storms this summer, but uh, not lasting very long. All right. A great advanced sneak peek. But yes, do watch tomorrow night. Global News at 530 and 6. Anthony Farnell has his summer 22 uh, forecast. Look, you, you're going you're gonna to nail everything in your forecast. You picked the wrong Jays game to go to Saturday, but that's okay. Like oh. these, these things. Oh, oh, God, I got a visceral re- guttural reaction. I've never heard you make that sound, but that's how bad it <laughs> yeah, was, well, wasn't it? I mean, I'm just happy I was watching on, on Father's Day Sunday because that was that was the game to be at, boy. Uh, we'll be watching uh, tonight and tomorrow night, Anthony, and talking uh, Friday heading into another June weekend. Thanks so much for the time. All right, take care. All right, there's uh, Anthony Farnell. Now, I want to play you this clip. I, I knew about this over the weekend, and then something hits your brain and you forget about it. Everybody's seen The Social Network. It's one of my favorite movies. And the two twins in it, right, were played by the same gentleman, Army Hammer. We won't talk about him. There's, there's some issues there. But he played Cameron Winklevoss and Tyler Winklevoss. Here's a clip from The Social Network. You know who the these Harvard guys Student are. Handbook, which is distributed to each freshman under the heading Standards of Conduct in the Harvard community. It says the college expects all students to be honest and forthcoming in their dealings with members in this community. Students are required to respect public and private ownership and instances of theft, misappropriation. And, or- yes, sir. Punch me in the face. Yeah. Um, so they basically, you know, they're they're famous because they kind of had a concept, wanted to work with Mark Zuckerberg, and then he kind of, well, they got $65 million because they sued and, and got paid out from Mark Zuckerberg. So in, in, instead of just retiring wealthy, they thought, well, let's, let's put our hands in some other stuff. Now, what they put their hands in is a cover band. And I'm going to tell you before you hear this audio, this is what I'm worried about. I sound like when I sing at concerts, but I don't, I haven't started a band. I'm not that, I'm not that bold. So they've got a band called Mars Junction. Here's a clip of them covering Don't Stop Believing" by Journey. Cause that's never been covered. Who would think about that? Anyway, here's them belting out Journey's Don't Stop Believing" the Winklevoss twins for your listening pleasure. No. Okay. Stop. There's dogs howling. There's things. Now, first of all, Gord, I got two thoughts. Um, one is it's actually a tight band instrumentally. They seem on it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't hear a lot of bum uh, guitar notes. I didn't hear a bad bass line. Well, I could have been because they were so bad. Because the yeah, you're you're paying attention <laughs> to the egregious vocals. Secondly, oh. who's harder to mimic than Steve Perry? Yeah. Nobody. Maybe Lou Graham. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like Don Henley's. You. You can, nobody sings like Steve Perry. Nobody does. <laughs> no. So why would you pick his most famous song and think you can cover that? You got to know your unless range. alcohol's involved. Yeah. Then then yeah. That's how most of it oh, happens. My goodness. That's so bad. And um, by the way, when I saw that the Winklevoss twins were doing like a song cover, I'm like, for some reason, I thought it was the Keelburgers. I'm not joking. I always get the guys from the We Charity confused with the guys from the social network. I need to see someone about this. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow between 530 and 9 o'clock. And of course, you can hear it on 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app.